Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Patricia Berry, Ph.D., and Michael Lerner as they discuss Echo's Subtle Body, Contributions to an Archetypal Psychology. This is part one of a two-part series. Pat Berry, welcome to the New School. <laughs> and uh, I just want to introduce you briefly, and then we can go into your puzzlement. Of that. Uh, <laughs> we don't need to. Into, no, but I'd like to go into your puzzlement. Uh, but I wanted to do that just as a way of framing, um, framing this. So, Pat Berry, welcome to the New School. Patricia Berry has been active in the Jungian world for nearly half a century, serving on faculties and boards of training institutions as president of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, as well as the New England Society of Jungian Analysts. She teaches and lectures internationally and lives and practices in West Bath, Maine. Uh, and uh, she was uh, uh, a, a colleague, uh, a partner, and married to uh, the great uh, archetypal psychologist and founder, co-founder of archetypal psychology, James Hillman. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so Thank you. let's just start, since I was on a roll uh, before we began this. Could, could, could I? Responses or puzzlement <laughs> at uh, what I was saying. What's your honest uh, response? Well, before we do that, um, could I say the, the network, networks of yeah. learning? Yeah. That really struck me uh-huh. that you began with, because I thought, my gosh, yes, that's, that's what works for me. That's mm-hmm. what worked to be with the beginning of archetypal psychology. Mm-hmm. That's why I want to move here, by the way. Mm -hmm. That's why I was attracted here. Mm -hmm. This is a network of similar minds or minds that one can learn from. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's blown me away since I've been here. Wonderful. So I'm ready to sell my house in Maine and live in a trailer here or something. (laughs) Maybe a tent. (laughs) But right now I'm at John's and it's a very nice place. We'll keep our eyes open for homes for you. Okay, thank you. So don't undervalue what you have here. This is just absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Uh, The puzzlement. Um, Well, you put it all together so structurally. And um, in, in my mind... So much about Jung and Jungian history is a confusion. Mm. Um, uh, Jung spoke first of the dominance of the collective unconscious, um, and then he defined archetype one way and then another way and then another way and another way, all of which had different implications. Mm. He, was, he was at a loss, too. I mean, mm-hmm. he was searching around. I mean, it's like an organ of the psyche, he said, so it's, it has a biological basis. Um, it's like a river run deep by experience. So there's an experiential g- contribution to it. In, with, it's like a crystalline structure in a solution, whatever the heck that means. It meant something very important then because they were looking at crystals and you know solution in solution. <laughs> so it meant something scientific and chemical for for Jung. He had a lot of different ways. Of, an organ. Yeah, I said that before. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of different ways of looking at what archetype was so that even now in most of the Jungian world it's not clear it's not clear what it is and there was a point by the way in archetypal psychology where we took a sort of shift and changed what we meant by it this was fast forward from the beginning to a period in Dallas Uh, we went 
We moved to the States, went to the University of Dallas. The deal at that time was each of us teach one course one semester. And uh, we were given a sort of sinecure just to be within a network of people that were interested in similar ideas. Um, there, um, most of the patients, um, I was also getting a PhD at the same time there, it came to me because they were frightened of the important man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so they found me a little bit more approachable, a little bit less frightening. Uh, what I began to notice in my practice was people came in and talked about their archetypes. Um, you know, they dreamt of Demeter on the street. Demeter on the street. Or um, they would excuse their behavior with things like, well, you see, it's because I'm a child of Dionysus. Mm -hmm. I mean, that absolutely, it was, it was an obvious defense so, I mean, I guess what I learned from that was that anything can be used as an offense, defense, even the most brilliant, you know, archetypal psychology. Um, so, Jim and I talked about that. So, he redefined it then, archetype, in this is in an article in Spring, somewhere mid Dallas period, so say between 80 and 83, um, as that which claims. Weight, weight and importance. So he didn't really define it. Mm -hmm. It was a, it, it became just a quality, in, instead of a instead of a set definition. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a way of sort of skirting the question in a phenomenal way, so that one got the emotional sense of the importance of archetype, without the definite structural definition of it. What was his earliest description of what an archetype was? Jim's? Yeah. I don't think he described what an archetype was. Um, I'm thinking of um, revisioning. Mm -hmm. Did he talk about what an archetype, why archetypal psychology in that book? Did he talk about what an archetype was? I think he just sort of followed Jung's mm -hmm. sense of dominance of something universal, mm -hmm. something universal, cross-cultural, mm -hmm. uh, a repetitive motif that was important, that, that called importance to itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, in our conversation, we'll be going backward and forward, but, yeah. um, but let's start... Uh, with uh, a little bit about how you see your views of um, archetypal psychology practice now. And you have a lovely little essay called Rules of Thumb Toward an Archetypal Psychology Practice, which is in your beautiful collection of essays, Echo's Subtle Body, Contributions to Archetypal Psychology, and second uh, edition. Um, and uh, uh, so it begins, the other day I was asked 
If I still considered myself an archetypal psychologist, the question astonished me. How could I not? I was in at the base level before archetypal psychology was named archetypal psychology. The first as a student adept, later as soror mystica, mystical sister, leaning over the edge with, the, with those stirring this heady brew. Newts, lizards, our innards were all in the pot. Not only did I feel archetypal psychology was me, I was part... I was part, uh, part of it, in, in it for a toe, for two, my whole head, and lots of spit. It's true, in the last several years, I've not hung out much with the folks talking about archetypal psychology. One of the reasons for my absence is that archetypal discussions have become focused increasingly on ideas. I've become increasingly less so. Yeah. I certainly honor ideation theory as important. As I age, I become more often hands-on about most things. And then you talk about that, and then you offer a set of rules of thumb. So can you kind of walk us through uh, how you, in your own practice, understand archetypal psychology uh, presently? It's hard to know which direction to... Uh... Certainly, uh, some of the descriptions that Jim gave in, in Revisioning Psychology um, are extremely important to me. Seeing through the, the an attitude, an eye, an ear, an ear that hears through or hears reverberations beyond the immediate, the first take, the literal take, seeing through whatever that first thing is to... Uh, res I keep mixing sound and, and eyes, so just let me, let me mix metaphors. To other levels. That quality, I think, is more archetypal psychology, or what would I call archetypal psychology, um, probably than anything else. I think that's something... You know, I work with I work with students. Um, uh, in I've been in the interregional society. I've been present in twice, once twenty years ago. Now again, I was president of Boston. So most of my life has been about teaching students and uh, working with people who are learning to be analysts. So. Um, I notice why they come, and, and I had had groups in. Maine that would come for a weekend and, and we'd work on their cases or their so we got we all got very close. But why did they come? The one thing that, that I felt I could do that they didn't get from other points of view, from other kinds of theories, was this sense of seeing through radically all the time, hearing through radically all the time. Some other psychologies do this as well. Another thing that's important, so part of what archetypal psychology is to me, um, is a sense of what Jung considered sort of finalism. He calls it finalism, purposefulness, purposiveness. That whatever's presented, even a pathology, has something beyond itself, is pointing beyond itself, more than itself. It's not simply um, a defense. 
It's not simply a saying no to life, but it's saying in some hidden way, yes to something else, or something else is almost being made at the same time. Now, I wish I had a concrete example. This is, well, I'm not good at concrete examples. <laughs> um, of how this works, but it stops one from stopping. It gives credit to a psychology, to a psyche, to a, as a living being, this is Grutian-like too, to a living thing that is making something, creating something at the same time. With your death and dying stuff, Michael. I mean, in the dying, there are things being created at the same time. It's not about dying as just a negative thing at all. There's a whole process. There are things being made. And so it is with everything we do. If you look at it carefully, or if you have a friend that can look at it, for I have friends who say, oh, well, Pat, don't you see? You know. And so they, they help me see more than what I'm seeing, you know? I mean, I may see, you know, well, I'm just an idiot, or, well, I'm just, I'm, a, I'm nervous about coming to this thing today. And they say, well, uh, <laughs> it's important. Of course you're nervous. I say, oh, okay. <laughs> Instead of saying, you shouldn't be nervous for heaven's sakes. You know, you've done all sorts of public things. What are you? Yeah, come on, snap out of it. They don't say that. My real friends say, yeah, of course. Of course you're afraid. That's okay. That's part of, that's part of living psychological, emotional reality. Who's not? You know? So. so that's archetypal psychology for me. But that begs the question. <laughs> of uh, course. <laughs> because we've talked about this a little bit. What do you think you are afraid of today? What do you mean? You said that you were afraid of coming here, you know, and you talked to your good friends, and your friends said, of course, it's important. Can you name what that fear is? You've done a lot of public speaking. We've talked a bit about this. Mm -hmm. But just because it's an important part of this process, what do you think that fear is? Well, one, one part of it certainly is that this is very personal. I mean, this yeah. is my life. Right. That I'm talking about. Exactly. Yeah. So that's big. Yeah. You know, I don't want to lose it. Right. <laughs> I can easily lose it here. <laughs> don't right. want to do that. Right. So that's a fear. Um, I'm also, I also want to, I want archetypal psychology to live, so I want to do, give it credit. I, I want to do credit to it, buy it. Right. I want to help a point of view that seems to me an extremely important one that's getting, goes other ways right now. Right. I want to say how I see it, how I saw it, what we were doing in the beginning. Right. And there's an important That's, way in which your deep contribution to this, in my view, has not been recognized. Yeah, I know. I know. Right. Yeah. So one of the things I am hoping today is to sketch out what your contribution to this has been, your engagement with it. Mm. You know, Because I think, in, in my view... It's astonishing how often, um, quote, great men or great women, but most often great man, uh, men, uh, have a partner who is not acknowledged in right, their, right, you know. Right. I mean, one story. thinks again and again of Rilke, for example, 
you know, and his, you know, love poems to God, right? Which were to a woman, you know, who was enormously important in his life, you know. Uh, you know, one thinks of Rumi. We all think of Rumi. We forget about Shams, who was the one who broke him open. So it is the way in which in these partnerships we are broken open to love, to loss, to everything that expands us into the real soul contributions, right? And very often those partnerships are erased by history or in one form or another. And it seems to me if we are going to see networks of learning and the ways in which we learn from each other, it's really useful to undo that erasure, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, diving <laughs> right into that, uh, this uh, the rules of thumb essay. When was that written, roughly? Uh, it, it, see, there was a a thing for Jim in Pittsburgh in, um, five years ago. Okay. And so we were invited to write so many right. words like that. So that's, let's say five. So the last, the last rule of thumb, the, the last paragraph in this beautiful essay on rules of thumb says, thank you, Jim Hillman. Those years in the mix with you were fundamental to my learning, glorious in reach and spread and lift, beyond inspirational. It was an extraordinary ride I remain deeply and forever grateful to you, my teacher. Right? Yeah. And this was after um, not only your marriage had ended, but if I have the history right, after what was for you a very painful break when uh, there was a... um, there was a uh, roast of Jim. And You're piling it all on at once, Michael. Help! Yeah, but I just think it's useful. Can we water it down and sort of? <laughs> <laughs> and, and you did this incredibly important piece. I think if anybody wants to understand the beginnings of archetypal psychology. Uh, you really, in a gentle, loving way, <laughs> talked about um, how it actually was. This was 1992. Yeah. And after that, if I remember correctly, our conversation, uh, Jim didn't talk to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really right. heard him. And you, and so, so. Here is, I mean, the way I look at it from where I am, this whole thing is a love story, you know? It's a love story about a relationship. It's more than that, but it's a love story it's about also a relationship a with you and Jim where you were his primary partner mm-hmm. through the whole development of archetypal mm-hmm. psychology. 20 years. 20 years. Then you broke up. Uh, then you must have maintained some kind of relationship and then in 92, you do this lovely, you know, um, contribution to a roast, which wasn't hostile at all, but it was too much for Jim. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that basically true? Yeah. Um, and, and then... Don't keep piling things on. <laughs> and then, and then, after that, then after that, you're still saying to him, thank you, you know, for being in the mix together. Mm-hmm. 
Do I have that right, basically? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So forgive me for piling it on, but but let's you know just sort of start mm -hmm. Take with the perception part of that this is a love story. It is a love story. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a piece of it. Yeah. It's not the part I want to focus on. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, let me start with a little piece about right. that particular right. talk at Notre Dame. Um, this was a couple years, what was that, 92, was 92. it? 92. 92. Um, I had left the relationship in 88 mm -hmm. and moved to Cambridge. Um, we were still in, in uh, our, our vow was to, to stay in working relationship mm -hmm. because we, our minds worked well together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I understood archetypal psychology like nobody and he understood me like nobody so uh, when this conference was going to happen he said you must give a talk he says you must be one of the primary speakers he thought I had pulled away because I didn't want to give talks anymore I didn't want to uh, do intellectual things and I didn't want to do intellectual things and that's a whole other story that we may get to if you don't we stop pushing me <laughs> forward. <laughs> uh, all I could do, what, uh, honestly, authentically, was, or wanted to do, I, I mean, I could not, I still couldn't think. I went through a whole period of, of sort of total anti-intellectualism, just burnout of all, everything that was happening up here. What I wanted to do was to talk about the human side of archetypal psychology, the people involved. The screw-ups, the, 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 the messes, the drunken things where we all sat around with a bottle of wine and, and you know, <laughs> and, and people jumped up and said things and a drunk fell through the window one time and all these things, you know, that, that go on. They go on, particularly in the beginnings of things, when they're all incestuous and this person's mixed up with this person, this person, and this person. And if you've been through the beginning of any kind of movement or psychology, that's how they start. Mm -hmm. That's how Jung's world started. That's how Freud's Wednesday nights started. I mean, they were all dual relationships. They were all mm -hmm. human. It's just all this stuff, all this stuff, it comes out of human beings and real human relationships. So what I wanted to do, and I actually thought, and this is where I was off, I thought um, he would be, you know, a little annoyed and shocked the way you are when somebody starts peeling layers away, but that by the end of it, he would be on board and he'd be enjoying it. That's actually what I thought, uh, which was a real misperception. And I wish, actually wish I hadn't done it, but I did. Uh, so that's, that's, I mean, I wish everybody had a copy of that because it, um, it, it, was, it was banned <laughs> at the conference. I mean, after I gave it, it, one or two people walked out doing it. This is a great big conference, maybe 500 people or something in a huge, in a huge room. And it was really my way of saying um, goodbye to everyone, you know, that... I was no longer part of it, but that to to give this roast story tribute, really, to what archetypal psychology had been and what it became. Mm -hmm. um, have you read this one, John? 
so you wouldn't know it either. Uh, so they made tapes of all of the lectures, and somebody rushed in and stopped the tapes being made of my lecture. Um, some had, people had gotten a copy before the presses were stopped, and so those copies went into a sort of underground copies of tapes and, and so on. Um, I didn't understand what was so offensive. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know how to talk about it from there on because we'd have to talk about specifics, so I'd have to read the whole thing to you, which we might have time to do, Michael. I mean, we've got a whole day here. <laughs> afternoon. Well, I think what I'd love to do is to make it available as a resource if that's doable. You can decide whether that is or not. So it's a well, thought. I, yeah, I have to. You can I think have, about that. Yeah, because kids. Uh, we're happy to make it as available as your. Uh, comfortable making it because I, I regard it as a foundational text about the uh, origins of archetypal psychology. And again, if we're going to undo this erasure, which uh, is uh, uh, you know a small step for um, uh, womankind, for womankind, <laughs> or partner kind, you know, maybe just the partner, whoever the partner is. <laughs> So, uh, so let's let's go. There was a a, a wonderful figure um, who uh, was sort of another unspoken uh, hero of Raphael. Raphael. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Tell us about Raphael. Yeah, Raphael Lopez Pedraza, Cuban. Uh, who do you have? Do you have you heard of him? Do you people know him? I doubt that anyone has. That's amazing. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, really? He, uh... Just for the record, Jennifer Stoll has heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> you should have. Not in depth, but no. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. The Latin world uh, knows him better because he, he ended up going to Venezuela, and so he has a... Uh, he was the wise old man of archetypal psychology. He was the one, he, he did a lot of grunting, and he was built like a bull, you know, short little neck. A, he walked like he owned the walk, <laughs> you know, and you walked behind him. <laughs> and he was constantly teaching. He was a kind of, you know, he'd, he'd stop and he'd talk at you. I was one of the sort of main ads surrounding him that he talked at. And I hung out with him in those early years because... I was, I didn't understand a word he said, but I knew, I knew it was unusual, what he was saying. And I knew it was water for the soul, and that my understanding would catch up at some point. But right now I was getting it on a, an emotional vibe level. It was, it, it just had to do with thinking in a, in a very, very different way. Okay, he had been a patient of Jim's for three years, and... Um, then they, be, they became friends at the same time, and they met and talked all the time. He had a woman friend, Valerie Don Levy, who was the ex-wife of J.P. Don Levy, the novelist, if you've never heard of him, the ginger man, the Irishman. The four of us, once I was together with Jim, uh, went to England, to the Warburg. That's when we first started talking about archetypal psychology. First time, what I remember, the way I remember it, 
was that uh, we were at a dinner and Raphael got into this thing about polytheism. Polytheism versus monotheism. Mm. That's a crazy idea. I'd never heard of anything polytheism, but polytheism was, I mean, we knew that was pagan and bad where I grew up in Ohio. <laughs> and monotheism, that's, well, of course. I mean, you know, Raphael reversed it all. Jim was right with it, too. But, but I would really attribute that to, to Raphael, that major turn of, of the ways of And the reason that's important, I mean, it's not really about, and this is one thing some, I want to say to you too, Michael, it's not really about gods and goddesses in the end, although it started that way because it started sort of primitively, but about multiple perspectives, many perspectives on anything that are okay. I mean, there's, they say it's a, it's a policy, it, it means there's gods in those many different perspectives and coming from those many different directions. That's a big thing. It also separated what, what they were doing from Jung's diagramming part, not from other parts of Jung. I mean, what Hillman really did was carry on a, an aspect of Jung, which I think was Jung's best aspect, <laughs> and took him away from his diagramming, trying to be a scientist mm -hmm. uh, part. Um, now I've probably mixed everybody up. No, no, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> You're listening to part one of a two-part series with Patricia Berry and Michael Lerner. No. Okay. So you write there, or wrote, you, you said, there over a meal in a fancy English pub, someone, Raphael, I think, made yeah. the first move toward what would become archetypal psychology. Raphael was about how the problem in psychology and Western thought in general was monotheism. Mm -hmm. This notion caught fire and we went on all afternoon drinking wine, trashing monotheism, <laughs> and intuiting how things might be different in a more pagan polytheistic world. <laughs> As with these and many other discussions, the almost daily conversations, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of went on, fantasizing about this evolving thought. Uh, see, Raphael, as I realize, I realize as I write this, I got, get into a lot of comparisons between Raphael and Jim. Right. Raphael always started with the unexpected, like polytheism, then right. barreled through. Right. Jim generally started with the more usual, often scholarship, Right. Uh, he starts with a scholarly layout. Then he finds a place where he turns on something, turns it upside down, and he's often leaping. Mm -hmm. This was all very heady, very exciting for a now 25-year-old, because you came to the I'm Young Institute right. at 23. Yeah. By 25, you and, and Jim are partners. Right. Uh, you say, actually, it's still exciting to a 49-year-old. <laughs> Let me say something more about Raphael. Raphael had a breadth of cultural and historical knowing that was remarkable, and it seemed to reside not in his head but in his very being. Uh, and so you spoke of yourself as one of the minads that surrounded him, and you said other young women came to Zurich and became patients of his, which I never was, thank God. So now there were four or five of us gathered around Raphael to soak up whatever it was we seemed to be needing and absorbing from him. You know, nowadays, psychotherapy would call these complexly personal connections incestuous or at least dual relationships. But in those days, that's how you did it. Mm 
depth psychology began in incest, Freud and his patients and their Wednesday night meetings, Jung and his early followers in relationships, now this. Of course, there were hazards. Not everyone made it through these entanglements unscathed, but it was also rich and full, so totally involving that if you made it through, you were changed forever for good or for ill. There was a lot of sacrifice in this, too. I remember thinking in terms of Gikrich's paper, a certain sacrifice of the virginal state of mind, a sacrifice certainly of innocence, sacrifice of the child. My own tutorial, if you can call it that, with Raphael required my learning how to put aside whatever common sense I had, had to entertain his less common sense. So, I mean, this is a brilliant, brilliant piece of writing. And so oh, you God. weren't the only person erased, in a sense. Raphael was yes. also erased. Yes, yes, and yes. it seems to me that part of that yeah. is that if you go back to this, if Raphael made the first move uh, toward polytheistic oh, yeah. thinking, which is at the heart of archetypal psychology, that would be very hard for Jim as the Apollonian sort of founder of something he didn't want to call a field. Uh, to acknowledge. Yeah, and, and vice versa. I mean, I think I, there's a lot of this in, yeah. in the history of thought, that um, Raphael had, the, uh, had a kind of brilliance, uh, just starting in a place nobody else started. Uh, he was also a self-taught man. I mean, he hadn't gone through how you're supposed to think, mm -hmm. as Jim did. Mm -hmm. So he had the brilliant insights. Jim had the ability. Mm-hmm. Jim was a very bright, well, very bright, able, capable, working person who could write, who could work, who could do many things in the world. And so, of course, it fell upon him and with his capacities to put things, these things together. I mean, Raphael has a couple books out, but they're, they're in Raphael speak. You know, you have to get into an under layer of things in order to tune into what he's doing. Jim talks to scholars, uh, not scholar scholars, but scholars, maybe our level scholars. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, scholars, the field's not scholarly enough, but certain level of people. I think Ivan Illich called it deinstitutionalized intellectuals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 That's right. You wrote. Whereas Raphael circled ideas in a cancerian backward manner, he was a cancer, a crab, clasping insights and ingesting them back into himself, into his own being. Jim moved more like a dancer, quick and clear with sudden spins, pirouettes, and somersaults that always seemed to land on somebody's feet. And there was laughter about that. Both men, and I love this, both men were polemicists. They thought oppositionally and generally worked off an other, an enemy that was stereotyped and placed out there. Uh, the battering was more Jim's mode because of his martial nature. I think this is, by the way, what is happening with Jim's attack on therapy nowadays. That's the enemy he's battering against in order to create the ideas over here as a result. But Jim is also Apollonic, he, uh, uh, Apollo-like. So he was able to step back, separate himself from his spars and lunges, then frame the battle, the issues, within an intellectual, ideational context and present it. Raphael was Dionysus, not uh, uh, Jim Apollo. This contrast between the two styles, Raphael's mode of being and Jim's brilliance in saying, was fruitful for many years and so forth. Then it ultimately it, it ended in difference. You see, I think, to me, this text 
is foundational to understand the origins of archetypal psychology. Mm, it is, and uh, I will be very interested if in the uh, second volume of Dick Russell's uh, remarkable first volume biography of James Hillman, uh, I hope uh, Russell, who I've also done a new school mm -hmm. conversation with, yeah, um, has um, the opportunity uh, to bring this fully into the light. I hope that happens, because I think it's critically important to the history of archetypal psychology. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm a lot within the first six chapters he's in right now, yeah. in volume two. So. But, but these, you know who was there and loved this? was Rick Tarnas. Really? Yeah. He, he came up to me that. afterwards. He said, anytime you want to come to our house, anytime you're in California, you know, come stay. I mean, he was all for what I had done. <laughs> so let's go back to the very beginning. And I know uh, uh, Jim did not like um, personal biography, or at least he avoided it until he joined this amazing partnership that created this great volume with Dick Russell, who was perhaps the most unusual choice to be his biographer that one could imagine. But, uh, they had a relationship. Did you know Dick during those no, years? No, no, no. Okay. Dick was, yeah, came on later. late. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but I certainly know him now. What, what are you willing to tell us about your early life? Where were you born and raised? Oh, uh, I was actually born in Long Beach. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, California during the war um, on January 16th, 1943. So I'm 72 today. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. We may even be able to be forced to sing you the, the oh, I, oh, I do want to hear that. No, no, no. Birthday. <laughs> so, 1943. Yeah, Long Beach. 1943. Uh, my mother was a, a, a Navy nurse, mm -hmm. and uh, my father was a Marine. They mm. separated before I even knew him. Mm. Um, yeah, and I also just learned some stuff about my mother, that she wasn't actually a Navy nurse for very long. She went off with him. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. But anyway... Um, so she was a single mother for the first four years of my life. Um, she was a nurse and so wheeled me around in laundry carts and they figured out how to raise, you know, this little child for a while. Uh, she was exhausted, so she moved, understandably, and I don't think I was an easy child. And uh, went back to Ohio, which is where she had come from. 
Her father had been an industrialist there and uh, died early, and the kids all just scattered. She went back, had a, had a brother there, and that's where she had gone to high school, so she met there a man who she had known in high school. She married him. They had another family. And so that's where, mostly where I grew up, in Ohio. So somewhere you said that you didn't like to talk about history very much. Um, so, but nonetheless, I will ask you, and you can decide what to say. Um, what was it like for you in uh, growing up? What What was your experience of your family? How? What What did you feel? What? And since this is a kind of the evolution of your journey, and beginnings are important. What was it like? Um, it was actually. I don't mind talking okay. about history at all. Um, are we talking personality-wise? Are we talking... I, I became, of course, very strong early on because my mother needed me to be, to be able to handle you know, life at that age. Um, when she remarried, I was traumatized. She went away with, with her new husband back here to the West Coast to show him where she had been and left me with people I didn't know. So I was just... Four to five in there, so it was it was traumatic. How long were you left? I think forever, but <laughs> I don't know what it. You know, mm -hmm. a couple of weeks, I guess, in order to drive in those days mm -hmm. to to California and then back to Ohio. Mm -hmm. and, um, so, uh, so I separated myself from him, from the family. They went ahead and had two more children. My brother and my sister, eight years younger, ten years younger. Mm -hmm. And um, I just went out in the neighborhood. I mean, I, I sort of was my own person in, in a bad way as well as a good way. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I was exposed to all sorts of things. It was, and, and my mother sort of let me. She was a kind of neglectful mother. And, and they were into their family. Uh, they got into sailing. My Stepfather built sailboats. My mother made sails. They built first. They built three houses before that. They were partners who worked together, which is something I actually admired about them very much. Mm -hmm. And um, I somehow, I never, he, um, I never owned him as my father, and he didn't own me. I was never adopted. Mm -hmm. So the name Barry is a. That's his name that I used illegally until I got a passport. And at that time, I couldn't get past the federal government. I got through school, but I couldn't get past the government. My mother went with me to a notary and swore that I was the one that... So I did get a passport. But I, I, there's something about that not being who I am that's an important part of who I am. Mm -hmm. um, there's a certain remove from identity that... Uh, actually helps me, or is part of me. Let's just say that it helps me. It hurts me, but it's part of part of me. Who were you in eighth grade? Waiting for ninth grade. Okay, <laughs> but who were you in eighth grade? Um, I was a good student in Ohio. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, and and, and kind of normal. Got my period. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Went to the yeah. uh, special dance with a yeah, sure. boy like that. Yeah. 
So good student, uh, got your period. What, what else about, were you outgoing? Were you an introvert? Were you, did you have lots of friends? How did you navigate being in eighth grade? Um, to answer the question better, I have to go a little bit later than eighth yeah. grade. Uh, uh, where I was, I was on the, I was in the in crowd because I was funny. Okay. I, I had, you know, girls get together, and if there's mm -hmm. a funny one in the crowd, she's always in the crowd because mm -hmm. it's part of the. So I was the funny one. Mm -hmm. um, I was smart, and and I was head of student council. And so I was, you were an achiever. I was all those things. Yeah, and I was yeah. achiever, and I made good grades, mm -hmm. and I played solo trumpet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I played the trumpet from the time I was seven mm -hmm. until I was 21. So oh. I played with the symphony, I played with bands, I played with orchestras, I played, and it was very weird to have a girl playing a mm -hmm. trumpet at that time. Um, and the other side, I had a completely secret life that didn't belong. Which was what? Um, what was it at that? Smoking. Mm -hmm. um, secretly hanging out with bad kids as well. Um, there was a period much younger where I broke windows, where I was angry, where I broke mm -hmm. windows and I did all sorts of really bad things mm -hmm. and made my mother worry about me, or at least know that I was mad. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was picked up by the teachers who helped me. You know, gave me things to read, talked to me, mm -hmm. and it really got me through school. I mean, got me, got me to believe in myself in a deeper way mm -hmm. that, that didn't just have to do with grades, but that I, I was a, a special person who could go on. Was there one teacher that was... Especially important. Uh, there was one in the ninth grade, mm -hmm. um, yeah, who I hung out with all the time. Mm -hmm. She had graduated in journalism and English, and so she was teaching me Shakespeare and and writing and things mm -hmm. like that. And then uh, she left, and then there was a couple, history teacher and an English teacher, and they. Um, would take me home to dinner. They had books. I mean, in my house, we had Reader's Digest. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was it. And my parents were away on the weekends. They sort of adopted me and um, lent me books and talked, talked to me. And what were you, who were you as a senior in high school? President of the Student Council, mm -hmm. National Honor Society. Mm -hmm. Got a scholarship mm -hmm. to go. I went to Ohio State, but... Mm -hmm. So, where, I mean, it happens in all kinds of different ways, but do you have a sense where that uh, uh, certainly searching intelligence, but I really want to say brilliance, uh, where, where that came from? Was that just kind of a biological accident of genetics, or was there some kind of history in the family that you go back to that you feel that came down to you from? Maybe my father I didn't know, uh -huh. who was a, uh, a dropout, a miscreant, uh, uh -huh. in trouble, okay. and that kind of guy, okay. for the little bit of mm -hmm. rebel. Did you ever find him or look for him? I, tr I tried, but no, he was, uh -huh. he was already gone. 
um, and an anger. I mean, part of my uh, pathology, part of my, if I look at it with those eyes, normal eyes, I mean, there, I was, there was a difficulty. As these students knew, there was something going on underneath that, that was lost. Um, made me distrust a lot of things that most people trust. I distrusted, um, I didn't like dishonesty, I didn't like sanctimoniousness, I, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, that's, that quality is something that connected me with Jim later, I think. Yeah. Um, and what was Ohio State like for you going away to college? Well, I went there because I thought I would be able to find work and a way to make it because mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have any money at all. It's big. I thought well, there, there will be many different ways. It, uh, that was a wrong choice, I think, because I got lost in the huge classrooms and Did you have other TV choices? I, I didn't. That was the only place I applied. Okay. Okay. It was because I was just thinking about money. Okay. So you applied to Ohio State. What did you study there? I started off in English. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And so there's a moment at Ohio State when you hear a tape, right? Is that ah. uh, of James Hillman, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell us about that moment. I had a... a uh, a friend, a very, very good friend, whose mother worked at the Unitarian Church, and he and I were into Jung. Uh, this is really about the end of college. And he, so he played this tape for me. It was Jim talking about the anima. And uh, it was exciting. I, I didn't like his sort of Europeanness and his archness. I mean, yeah, it's from Ohio. But at the same time, it, it was interesting. I mean, I, I wanted to go to Zurich. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. That's the place Ed Casey comes from, right? It's 1965 when I first hear the voice of James Hillman whirling on a tape. The voice is raspy, up in the head, I think, discordant, strangulated, as though perhaps his collar is too tight. His elocution, certainly a continent away from anything heard in Ohio, is eloquent, elegant. The part of the lecture I remember best is on the anima. This lecture, by the way, became in search later on. He describes a cool, distant Nordic type that sounds a lot like me, I think, though I'd never thought of myself in animate terms. In general, to my undergraduate abstract way of thinking, this lecture seems simple. You know, it's types, types of women. But then uh, somebody gives you a book, Suicide in the Soul. Yeah. By Hillman. What was mm -hmm. that like? I couldn't read it. <laughs> Whoa. Suicide. This isn't English as I've been taught it. All the inverted syntax, the strange elliptical turns, arch and overwrought, I think, schizoid. He seems to say that death is a possibility. You can die if you want for the sake of your soul. Soul. Whatever soul is, he seems to be saying it could be more important than life. Betrayal, a pamphlet from the Guild of Pastoral Psychology with us, the next thing. This was easier. I could read the English. And since I myself was just coming out of a relationship that crashed, I figured I knew something about the subject. 
So that brings you to Zurich. Yeah, but we've, sp- we've skipped a big part before okay. there uh, that's important. Yeah, what's that? Uh, which is a drowning, the kid, the kid that drowned. Um, I worked at a summer camp and was head of the waterfront. So I was, I was in charge of everything watery and uh, took kids on canoe trips up through Upper Michigan, Wisconsin. I had a kid that drowned that I couldn't save. And that knocked me out. It still does. Yeah. But it was it was important. Um, it took me out of school for a year, and. Um, gave me a chance to just fall apart. Mm. And when you fall apart, you eventually come back together. So I, uh, I tried to work, but I couldn't. Give me a minute. Um, because it was so dramatic. Um, I tried to work at the waterfront in, uh, at the university where I taught life-saving and <laughs> such things. Thank you. Um, but uh, the water made me dizzy. I... I, I uh, worked in a hospital where I had to take care of x-rays. Boy, this is, the not, this is not the part I thought would get me today. Right. This is not it at all. Right. The part I thought, it didn't get me. <laughs> but it was waiting. <laughs> waiting to this part, which is the falling apart part. Um, I, I, one time I didn't get the film, I, I didn't get the film to the operating room at the right moment, and so I felt that was my fault. And somebody died also? No. Oh. <laughs> no, <thank God. laughs> no, no, it's, I'm so hypersensitive now. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's PTSD, we call it now. In those days we didn't call it PTSD. Right. Um, I wish somebody hadn't understood what was going on. I wish I had understood what was going on because I kept forgetting that I had this reaction. But then I'd, So then I worked just in a department store <laughs> over Christmas and I hear a siren and I'd faint. Mm. So I was constantly <laughs> having to stop <laughs> sit on a curb with my head down until I could get up and... and again. So that took a while <laughs> before I could um, function again. Um, and I can't remember what got me to where I could. I sat, um, I shared an apartment with two other um, girls and I sat with my typewriter and 
just typed everything that came through my head. And I, that slowly put me back together because I realized I had a head. I had thoughts. I had observations. Not brilliant observations, but things tied together. And I didn't know that anything tied together. So there was a kind of knitting back together uh, in this sort of self-imposed therapy of mine. I also then, a little bit later, was in a play, and I could do acting. And that got me out of myself into a character on a stage, and that also, oddly enough, began to give me legs back. And, uh, and then, I remember the sun one day, spring coming, coming through the window, and uh, it's, it's like a, a shade had lifted. Mm-hmm from the window, it was like the color, suddenly I could see colors again. The, the world took on bright color. And that was, the, that was the other end of it. And then I went back to school and went boom, 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 you know, A's and everything, and out and off to Zurich. Thank you for telling us that. Oh, thank yeah. you. And you know, it's a scar that's just part of life yeah, for me now. But. March 1966, I go to Zurich. I've just turned 23, and I'm about to become the youngest student at the C.G. Young Institute, which is no distinction, really. At that time, anybody could go to the institute who wanted to. It's just that no one that young had bothered to apply. As part of the registration, I'm to meet with Director of Studies James Hillman. But I meet a ski instructor instead and go off to Austria. Caught in a blizzard in the Alps, a blinding one. Somewhat shaken and chastened, I return to the gray and dismal lowlands of Zurich and make another appointment with the director of uh, studies. Years later, I learned this prestigious title, director of studies of the C.G. Young Institute, is a title and position actually invented by Jim. <laughs> it's a good idea and was later adopted at other institutions. Now, this is Jim, the inventor, the initiator. It's also Jim on the career ladder, a ladder he has to flirt with and slide off several times during his career. See, there's a part of Jim that's been drawn to the establishment. He wasn't just an outsider, though he sometimes acts that way. His mother had wanted him to be a diplomat, a statesman. She also wanted him to appear on the Johnny Carson show. <laughs> so, so far, he's done neither. He once said he did have a chance to appear on television, but he got sick. Um, so I finally did manage to have an interview with Jim. He was 39 years old. He had hair. He wore Tweedy Irish-style suits which he thought were dapper. I had even more hair I wore in 60s style to conceal as much of myself as possible. Uh, what wasn't concealed I covered with a dark raincoat down to my ankles. I was hiding. Now the part of the purpose of the interview was that I was to tell my story, which I did, I thought, uh, was fairly messy. I found Jim to be an unsympathetic listener. <laughs> I think I had imagined that since I was entering the realm of depth psychology and about to begin a depth analysis, I should start by showing the damaged goods. So I opened up and bared what I thought was my soul with earnestness. Jim was polite but obviously unimpressed. (laughs) Then for probably the first and last time and only time in his life, he turned to practicalities. 
How did I think I was going to live in Zurich with no money, no possibilities of a job? It's illegal for a foreigner to work in Zurich, no ability to speak the language. He told me I was crazy, and that was the end of the interview. <laughs> it's true. But you persevered. <laughs> I persevered. You're listening to part one of a two-part series with Patricia Berry and Michael Lerner. So tell us how you persevered. How did you manage to overcome that? <laughs> I, I had... I, I knew that I had, there was no way back. Mm-hmm. There was no way back. Um, I met a Swiss guy on the street, um, and he suggested I put an ad in the newspaper advertising myself as an au pair girl. Mm-hmm. So he wrote the ad for me, put it in the newspaper, and pretty soon I was hired by somebody, so I worked as an au pair mm-hmm. for all those first years in Zurich. You said it was a... I spent the first year eating a kind of mush paste that I made yeah. by mixing water and muesli. It was a grim, les miserables experience. <laughs> Grimmer yet, because the classes at the Institute were so disappointing. Uh, and my analysis, for which I paid 10 francs, which was $2 then, just made me sleepy. I'd literally go to sleep before going to analysis and sometimes not even make it. But I had a friend, a short, fat Cuban in his 40s, who was Raphael, who we've met. And so that introduced you to a whole world, right? Yeah. 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 So, um, so you talk about uh, a very uptight Protestant atmosphere, uh, but with Raphael, you began to dance, right? Oh yeah. There was. A, let me tell you about this. This was. This was a a, a, a dance, a party at Fiertz. You know, Linda Fiertz. Have you any ever heard of her? Nora wrote about her in Those Women. It's the early women in Zurich that really created Jungian psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, so Linda Fiertz was one of those, and she had one of these magnificent houses overlooking the lake, with. Uh, medieval uh, drawings and paintings in little sections of the ceiling. Her son, Heinrich Fiertz, now owned the house, and so he was part of the party. Uh, and uh, so all of us students were there, and somebody put on American music, and we all started doing our American thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And Raphael started doing this mm-hmm. sexy thing back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, you know, this old fat man, <laughs> which right. I was somehow attracted to in this strange way. I mean, you know, not sexually, but not sexually. No, no, really. <laughs> well, when you said you were one of the minads around, well, well, yeah, well, well, there's erotic relationships. There was, forget it. <laughs> The man from across the room picked up my movement and gave it back to me with such depth and decisiveness that I was transfixed. Not sexual. <laughs> that night, not sexual. I had sired a huge group of children of all sizes and yeah. ages. These children were not sexual, as you know, by the way, all of us. So Raphael became a friend uh, and uh, a kind of a teacher and guru and so on. So he was yeah. really... He was, uh, he was archetypal psychology. He fathered archetypal psychology right. in me, anyway. Right. And, 
again, made a huge contribution, which has been erased from history. Yeah. So this and I think from that history. is history. Michael, that's history. That's what all of history is. Well, but you know, there are some people who erase others and others who acknowledge them. That's true, too. They are, there are two different ways of working. You can erase others and you can acknowledge them. And I honestly have to say that my preference is to acknowledge people. I find it more interesting. Because Certainly more generous. Because I that we really develop in community, you know, and that to acknowledge that community nourishes everybody, whereas to erase people um, is another strategy, but it's not the only one. It's the old-fashioned one, though. Yeah. I'm not sure. Really? Well, I think... Uh, do you think Goethe, do you think he acknowledged people around him? Goethe definitely acknowledged people. Yeah, he talks all the time about the contributions different people made to his thought. You know, I don't know, he may have erased people too, but he certainly acknowledged people. But I, th I mean, what comes to my mind is the platonic dialogues, you know. Uh, you know, there's an example where it's true. the whole pursuit of truth is through dialogues and the people are preserved forever. <laughs> so... Um, so, uh, so then the second semester, you took a course with Jim Hillman on the feeling function. And you said, although it was obvious at the outset that feelings or anything that one might recognize as feelings were not Jim's strong suit, at least the classes were understandable. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. that was your first class with Jim? I think so. Mm -hmm. So... Um, then the next class with Jim was on animal images and dreams, and that one struck you. Tell us about that one. Well, he sort of, I, what I say in there is how he acts out the various animals <laughs> in, in weird ways. Uh, he acts out a baboon. Yeah, acts scratching out. Scratching his right. Fanny. But one thing about Jim is, I mean, I feel myself not coming to his side because you're against oh. him. <laughs> is, no, well, I mean, no, no. I mean, you recognize that he cuts people out. Yeah. Although he also he also recognizes a lot of irrelevant people to mm -hmm. show that he recognizes people. <laughs> By the way, and I imagine Goethe might have done some of that too. <laughs> but. Um, this this idea of animals is is a is a is a strong. It, it's important in archetypal psychology. There's a sense of and a belief in. This is Jim, instinct as part of the psyche, animals as part of the psyche, animal instinct as part of psychic instinct. Um, an important driving thing, and 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 in therapy and analysis, getting in touch with those animal energies, very important. There's a place somewhere in the Hillman literature where Hillman talks about um, entering the psyche, or I'm not sure I'm using the right word, but and the soul, the psyche, whatever, but like a jungle where there are all these animals and that what the purpose of the ego is to enter it as unobtrusively as possible simply to watch the animals. Um, and um, he also, there's a place where he talks, maybe you talk about, um, I think it was somebody else, um, 
about uh, how important horseback riding was for him or horses. Mm, and I mean, you, you kept horses together mm. when you lived in... No, no, I was the horseback rider, right. but I, I would saddle it and teach... Would, I would help him up on the horse. <laughs> but, but his thing was that more important than the horseback riding was the relationship to the horse. Is that true or not? I don't know, but I... Okay. I mean, I don't know him saying okay. that. But. Okay. So in any case, animal instinctual life was central to archetypal psychology, is our point. Yes. Yeah. 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 So how did your, um, well, here's another wonderful story that you tell, but I'd like to ask you to tell it. Uh, you went into analysis with Jim. Uh, what was it like having an analysis with Jim Hillman at that point in Zurich? What, what was the experience like? <laughs> Well, the waiting room, this is in an old building, <laughs> was a chair <laughs> up, up above on the next floor up. So as soon as he finished with the patient below and they went out, he would look up and then you would come down. The, so you sort of passed each other. I mean, you, you heard the person leave, you entered. It was always 20 past the hour, 25 past the hour. It was at an odd time. It wasn't like a 50-minute hour, and then you always begin on the hour. It was, yeah, mm -hmm. it was at odd times. If, I think I say in there something, but if he hadn't had breakfast, your hour, your session might be in the coffee shop next door. I had a number of sessions in coffee shop. It might be walking along the street. I didn't have so many of those. Mm -hmm. But some people did. Um, it was... But you know, I, I bet you Jung did things like that too. I bet you a lot of mm -hmm. early Jungians might have done things like that. It was more casual, it was more a platonic conversation. It wasn't set in a particular room. Mm -hmm. Although we also were in a particular room. Mm -hmm. Anyway, what, what were you thinking? I think no, I've I screwed just, up my text there. curious where? about it. Um, uh, was he sought after as an analyst in the circles that you both moved in, or not particularly? Not particularly. There were a lot of uh, important people in town. Mm His -hmm. analysts, uh, Freddie Meyer, C.A. Meyer, uh, Liliana Fry, uh, 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 Von Franz, Barbara Hanna. There were a lot of first-generation mm -hmm. Jungians who had worked right with Jung. Mm -hmm. And they were probably the most sought after. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Meyer, what was Meyer's first name? Uh, Freddie. Um, that's what they, people call him, C.A. Meyer. Yeah, okay, Freddie Meyer. So he was um, Jim's analyst. He was also Jim's wife's analyst, mm -hmm. right? Yes. He proceeded to have an affair with Jim's wife, yeah. right? Yeah. This was part of that incestuous yeah. set of relationships. Obviously, Jung had the relationship with Tony Wolfe, who probably everybody knew about or did mm -hmm. not know about. Yeah, sure. So here you have the founder, Jung, who actually integrates Tony Wolfe, his lover, into his household. Stands for it. Excuse me? He stands for the situation. Right, he stands for the situation. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Jungian analysts are sleeping with their patients, so it's not an unusual thing. Jim has the misfortune to have an affair with an American woman married to a minister who then sets about trying to destroy Jim 
and ultimately, with tremendous effort, drives Jim out of the Jung Institute, mm -hmm. which leads Jim to the freedom in, in the face of this professional collapse mm -hmm. to create archetypal psychology just mm -hmm. to, to frame yeah. the whole story. Wow. But what he was wow. doing, which today would be frowned upon, was in fact the, the, the rule rather than the exception almost. Oh, no, I wouldn't go that far. No, no, it wasn't the rule. Well, I mean, most of the women, most of the analysts were women, but what about the male analysts, you know? Some of them did, some of them some didn't. didn't. There, okay. were, there were a few mm -hmm. homosexual affairs mm -hmm. among men, uh, mm -hmm. but moments. Um, I wouldn't say it was the rule. Okay. Uh, and it was not okay, but people didn't... Um, there were there wasn't such things as ethics committees or ethics mm -hmm. procedures or it wasn't formalized mm -hmm. like that in those days. Mm -hmm. It was much more just a sensibility that there are certain things that weren't really good to do and, mm -hmm. and you didn't. Most people didn't. Mm -hmm. Should it happen, um, then it happened. Mm -hmm. But Meyer, um, who uh, who had an affair uh, with Kate with his with Kate. Jim's first wife, uh, he then went on to, in effect, side with the minister oh, yeah. in conspiring to get yeah. Jim kicked out for yeah. precisely what he himself had done with Jim's wife. It's just a rather striking... It's even worse. It's even worse than that. Yeah. Uh, Jim, uh, Jim's wife was, was very wealthy, mm -hmm. and um, so she had... Uh, rented a sailboat, they all went to the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. sailed around Gr Greece, mm -hmm. the, the four of them, the two couples, mm -hmm. at the same time as the wife was sleeping with. I mean, it's, it's corrupt, it's horrible. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. And yet, he was the one that went after, that mm -hmm. went after Jim. Mm -hmm. You're right. But Jim had, at a certain level, um, brought into this sleepy uh, institute where Jim was acknowledged to be the brightest and most able person to have graduated from the institute, no? A lot of people hated him because he was arrogant. Right. And he was. I mean, he was inflated and arrogant. Right. Uh, and then he becomes director of studies and he begins to, which he made up, yeah. <laughs> he begins to introduce all these new and creative ideas, which there's a lot of unhappiness with among yes. the yeah. worshippers of Jung who constitute the faculty. Yes. Is that basically right? Yes, yeah. yes. Meyer thought Suicide in the Soul was a dangerous book yeah. because it, it, did, it wasn't absolutely against suicide. Mm -hmm. And so that would... Mm -hmm. And the point you make about how both Raphael and uh, uh, Hillman were polemicists and how they worked, they did their best work in opposition yeah. to something. Yeah. 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 You see, I think that's the place, because you, you said I'm against Hillman, which I'm actually not, but after <laughs> two and a half years of immersion in Hillman, I, I do, and I've said this to you, um, I do find myself in, in some respects more a Jungian than a Hillman person, but it's not so much Jung himself, it's actually 
interesting because Hillman, in his official account of how archetypal psychology starts, uh, describes the visit to the Warburg Institute, which, written this way, sounds like he went alone in the <laughs> right. Way, right. And his encounter with Marsilio Ficino, who was the great Renaissance Neoplatonist, uh, who, uh, uh, who Thomas Moore wrote an extraordinary book about called The Astrological Psychology of Marsilio Ficino, which, interestingly, Moore no longer lists on his website among his books. And I think it's actually huh. his best book, or one of his best books. But, and I'm so curious about why he doesn't acknowledge Might be out of print. No, I got a copy, or maybe it is. Maybe I got it used. But in any case, this is the interesting thing, uh, that um, Hillman looked for a precursor of uh, Freud and Jung, but he didn't go back to Goethe and the sort of original group that Jung drew on. He went back to Ficino, who I think Jung did not draw on. He went back to the Renaissance to found his own archetypal psychology. Right, right. The other side of the Alps. The other side of the Alps. And uh, which made him very popular in Italy over time. Mm -hmm. is my, yes. yes, yes. He was given the key to the city. Exactly. Florence, yeah. And, uh, but the, the, the point I'm coming to is that Ficino actually gives spirit enormous importance in his astrological psychology. So there's this dialogue between soul and spirit. The problem for me with Hillman is his apparent disregard, his dissing of spirit. And that's the place where I find myself more Jungian. It is that, and I was just reading a remarkable book by John Tarrant. I don't, do you know Tarrant? He's a very interesting uh, guy out here who's a, a psychotherapist and a Zen teacher. He actually does programs here at Commonweal, contemplative practice programs here at Commonweal. But he talks about the dialogue between soul and spirit. And he talks about character as the intermediary force so that we know we don't identify completely either with spirit, which takes us upward into transcendence, or soul, which is the dark, moist part of ourselves that stays close to the body. Hillman explicitly makes archetypal psychology a soul psychology. Mm -hmm. He speaks from mm -hmm. the perspective of a soul. Mm -hmm. From my point of view, that's a tremendous service to the field, and what he's done is brilliant. But for me, it is that dialogue between spirit and soul and following Tarrant with character as the intermediary force so that we don't identify completely with either spirit or soul. And Tarrant goes on to say that integrity is the guide point through which we refine character. So um, mm -hmm. that's what I miss in Hillman. I miss that equal dialogue between spirit and soul, the movement between that which is transcendent and that which is embodied, and our character, for better or for worse, as the kind of mediating process with integrity of some kind. It may not be the integrity of, you know, of contemporary mores, but our own integrity in some ways as the way we refine our character. That, to me, is the map of psyche well, and this might be the moment to do that. Mm -hmm. See, back where Jim was, right. um, what he wanted to do was to show, he wanted to distinguish something from 
the spirituality of most Jungian psychology. Mm-hmm. He, and so he did it against spirit. He said, bracket that out. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that he said anything terrible about it, but bracket that out. This is what I'm looking at. I'm looking at soul. I'm looking at the valleys. Mm-hmm. You know, the worth of the world, or the Keats quote, whatever mm-hmm. that goes, mm-hmm. is, is soul. Call this world a veil of soul. That's right. That's, That's right. I mean, that was his job then because that was the context. Mm-hmm. The job now may be exactly what you're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. makes sense to me. Well, when... Uh, uh, John, uh, uh, when John and I were up at uh, uh, doing a talk at Sonoma State University, a very interesting professor up there uh, told me about the handbook of Jungian psychology, which I got. And it's really, I think, for people interested in, do you know the book? No, who did it? Uh, Do you know who did it, John? Okay. To me, it is the best overview of Jungian psychology. But what's really interesting about it, among many other things, is the respect with which Hillman is treated. And it's very interesting that Hillman started as a rebel Mm -hmm. against uh, Jungian psychology, Mm -hmm. but he didn't need to kill the fathers. He didn't kill either Mm -hmm. Freud or Jung. Mm -hmm. And uh, so although he was a rebel, uh, what I witness happening, see the handbook of Jungian psychology, is there were, of course, many schools of, in other words, Hillman uh, uh, was one of two key people, according to Sonu Shandasani, uh, who, made, who made the break with Jung. And he talks about there were two yeah. key people. Fordham. Fordham was another big one. Fordham is the other one who, who introduced developmental yeah. factors. Um, yeah. and, um, uh, and so... So Hillman and Fordham were two key post-Jungian Jungians, right? Mm-hmm. And they opened up the possibility of independent thinking in the Jungian mm-hmm. tradition. And now uh-huh. it's widespread. Or at least in, if you read the handbook of Jungian psychology, it's widespread. I have to see this yeah, handbook. It, yeah, because it's extraordinary how diverse Jungian thought has become yeah. from the handbook. Uh, yeah, it is extraordinarily... Div- I, I tell you what I was caught in when I was... Yeah. Uh, is institutionally, because that's so much part of my world, the in, uh, training institutes of Jungian psychology have all gone, almost all, gone radically uh, psychoanalytic. So in a certain way, things have shrunk. I mean, I'm... I fight for diversity, <laughs> as many different, so that you say that is, is good. I think there are just so many unions outside the training institutes, right? Good. Maybe that's and the since truth. you inhabit the training institute uh, yeah. world, yeah. you yeah. experience uh, But I'm almost out. You're my, yeah. yeah. My presidency is up in October. After that, I'm outside <laughs> the training world, and I'm moving here. Yeah. <laughs> I should say that the, the introduction to uh, Dick Russell's um, book, The Life and Ideas of James Hillman, Volume 1, The Making of a Psychologist, this, this actually is an interesting example of this uh, embrace of Hillman. Son of Shamdasani, as we both know, is, is one of the greatest scholars of Jungian thought. He edited and did a brilliant introduction to Jung's Red Book. Yeah. Uh, I actually have on the table here 
this extraordinary dialogue between Hillman and Sonasham Dasani, Lament of the Dead, the psychology after Jung's Red Book. So he has lots of choices. He chooses to do the preface to the Russell book, right? Yeah, yeah. And so he yeah. embraces this. And so here's Sonasham Dasani, one of the most respected Jungians, uh, says, uh, Hillman set out to explore the workings of the creative principle within psychology. Could the creativity of this newly inaugurated field have something to do with the master fathers of Freud and Jung themselves, he asked. As Hillman put it, could the finding of the fathering principle begin through an examination of these actual fathers and the creative principle in them? And then here's the paragraph. Half a century later, one may add the figure of Hillman himself to this pantheon. I want to read that again. This is Sono Shandasani. Half a century later, one may add the figure of Hillman himself to this pantheon. Strikingly in contrast to Freud's legacy, there have been arguably only two major original figures following in the wake of Jung. Michael Fordham, who sought to redress the lacunae in analytical psychology with his developmental model, and Hillman, who took on Jung's daimonic inheritance, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I am impressed that uh, by embracing Hillman, uh, it creates all the space for other independent thought. Yeah, and I would add Gigerich, Wolfgang Gigerich. Tell that. us about him, I don't know. Uh, he was an early archetypalist, uh, a very a brilliant um, German fellow trained here at Stanford or Berkeley, mm -hmm. um, has written now maybe 10 volumes. Mm -hmm. He's a thinker. Uh, I studied him the last couple of years and I've been to his conferences. He's, he's ra a rational thinker, which is why he broke with Hillman. Hillman's too mm -hmm. for him. Uh, and he says a lot of brilliant things and he knows Jung backward and forward. Mm -hmm. So I would say he's another major force. And it's too heady his, for most people. What is his contribution? Um, very careful thinking through everything that Jung did um, and p placing it in a sort of Hegelian context. He Hegel's a very strong uh, part, of, part of his thinking. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's based on thinking. Not everybody's going to like it. They don't like it, but it's a big contribution. Mm -hmm. You know, I had dinner last night with a very interesting friend of ours named Connie Holmes, who was part of the cancer help program work. Um, and I was going to her for an astrological reading. She's an ast uh, astrologer. Uh, and um, we were talking about, and she also loves Hillman's work and studied him in some depth. And we were talking about uh, archetypal studies, both in astrology, you mentioned Rick Tarnas, mm -hmm. and uh, in, uh, in archetypal psychology. And she said something that really interested me. She said that she thought, and it sort of relates to some of the things that you've said about your interest in just sort of the real human interactions as opposed to the idea archetypes. Uh, she said that um, she was interested in the relational aspects of archetypal psychology and that she thought that a key body of thought was, um, was uh, I wish I had my notes here, but it's um, where the psychologists who were studying 
the neuroscience mm -hmm. of attachment theory. Mm -hmm. That's another big thing. And, uh, and I found that a really, and she said it came out of the object relations school yeah. in England, uh, and that object relations in turn led to attachment theory. And that attachment theory was now being stu studied in terms of neuroscience. And she talked about, just to make this concrete, she talked about the different uh, attachment styles mm -hmm. and how the concept of good enough mothering. And if there's good enough mothering, then you can have a secure attachment to another human being and negotiate your relationships. Whereas if there's not a good enough mothering or parenting to be better about it uh, um, then you get different neurotic styles of attachment that um, are either clingy and you know so forth or avoidant or whatever and it just struck me as as we talked that there's an interesting conceptual relationship between your interest in how what are the real human relationships and Connie's observation about different attachment styles. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to be in that camp. Mm -hmm. um, Tell me more. Um, first of all, a good enough mother goes all the way back to Winnicott. Right. So, which was object relations, right? Um, I guess. Yes. Um, the and the attachment theory at this point is mm -hmm. so simplified. I mean, it uh -huh. comes out of a sort of simple scientific uh -huh. model. Uh -huh. So there's four types of attachment. Uh huh. Um, we got all sorts of types of attachment in us. I mean, I have good attachment and I have bad attachment and I have fleeing attachment and I have clinging attachment. And I, I mean, it's back to a simple typology, maybe necessary at the beginning of uh, joining attachment theory and neurobiology. I mean, all of this is going to change enormously in the next couple years, as neurobiology develops and develops and develops, it's all going to become much more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. But at this stage, it's, for me, it's like primitive typology. Oh, that's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. But say a little more about what you imagine the impact of uh, neurobiology will have on archetypal psychology. Yet to see. But it's a fascinating new world. I mean... Uh, trying to think something that they've actually... Some of you may know much more about neurobiology well, you know, than I do. There's a whole group around the Dalai Lama that's been studying neuroscience. As well. And, you know, contemplative uh -huh. stuff. Uh -huh. so, uh, and, and people have certainly done it on the neurobiology of love. There's been a, a lot of... And they've done things about mirroring and um, y you know, connecting in the, it's empathy. You see somebody do that and you can, they can see it in the brain here and... I think it's so far, it's stuff we know already in other ways, but it's, it's going to be more and more interesting. I don't know mm -hmm. where it'll, it'll go. You know, it's interesting to me because uh, I, I'm fascinated by neurobiology, and I also see it as a new form of scientific materialism. Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, to mm -hmm. my mind, mm -hmm. in other words, I'm fascinated by it, but what draws me is um, is this are the archetypes and uh, I don't want to see the archetypes reduced right. to a neurobiology. neurobiology. I right. think you lose too much right. of uh, the actual experiential. You know. Well, that's why. Yeah, 
going back to Goethe and people like right. that. That's why that is so important right now. You know, one of the things, we've done probably, I'm guessing, but a dozen new school conversations on archetypal studies in psychology. And one of the things I'm deeply conscious of, and this is such a great example of how helpful John has been to me, mm-hmm. where, you know, I put out my current understanding of something, and John says, yes, and, you know. Uh, you know, actually, when you began studying this, both Pat's work and Raphael's work were part, were foundational, and Jim acknowledged it, uh, and, and. But it doesn't show up in the biography, right. which is another right. dimension of uh, both the combination of generosity, but also a choice about how to tell the story in the in the biography. But I'm so aware that anybody who follows the evolution of the archetypal conversations at the New School, that I've been learning my way through this. And, you know, that my earlier versions of this were, you know, quite different from, and nor do I believe I've come to the end of the process. And then you, at a certain point when you were uh, with Hillman and all the rest at the Young Institute, you needed to take a break, you went back to Ohio. Yeah. To Ohio State. That's right. And at that point, when you're home, yeah, Kent right. State happens. Just up the road. road. Yeah. And people get killed. By Five the people get killed. Yeah, yeah, right. And, right. So, and then everything explodes yeah. into tear gas and, you know, and the whole university falls apart. And I, think, I mean, one of the experiences that Pat and I share is we're almost exactly the same age. So we've been through this... Uh, long, strange trip together, you know, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. so it's definitely been formative for any, anybody that went through it, um, mm-hmm. you know, in fundamental ways. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton has a wonderful line. He says that, um, that people who think that on the whole the 60s and the 70s were a bad thing are conservative, and those who think they were a good thing are liberal, and so... That seems to be the current dialogue about, you know, whether uh, the whole counterculture was, despite its tragedies and the civil rights movement and everything else, was it on the whole a step forward or, you know, and people have different views of that. And uh, let me just add that Commonweal, my friend and colleague Ernest Lasberg, who's here, is our chief strategies officer. We have a profound interest in the millennial uh, generation, uh, which uh, we see as tremendously creative and hopeful, not just the millennials, but uh, as an example. And I often say that I, my experience of the millennials is that they're the generation we've been waiting for uh, because there is this deep connection I don't know. between, well, for me. We need to talk. Uh, <laughs> We will. Okay. <laughs> but for me, there's this really deep connection between the maker movement, the do-it-yourself movement. Um, you know, I, uh, we have a young millennial couple living in, in, in our little uh, homestead, and um, they are just so wonderful, and their friends are so wonderful. And I just love what they're trying to do um, and uh-huh. I feel that they are we were more about the theory and they're more about the practice 
involving nature and involving and, nature yeah, involving yeah, for sure, um, for sure. involving that you know the millennials do not believe they're ever going to make as much money mm-hmm. as uh, as older generations do right. and they are having to do two three four different jobs to make things work uh, but there's this I'll tell you what I like most um, I was at a wedding engagement party for the young couple that live with us and their friends were all there and they were all partnering up and having babies and all this great stuff and I looked at them and said um, you guys seem so hopeful and they said we are hopeful and I said well what about all this stuff you know and they said well it's always been a struggle but we're hopeful you know it could just be the genetics of being young, but um, but I felt like it was more than that. I thought it was just kind of an embrace of uh, of the possibility of what somebody once called muddling toward frugality, and uh, the possibility of a life in which cultural values and non-material things develop more importance and we learn to live in greater balance. So oh, that would be wonderful. Me, they're the people who are trying to do that and I, I love it. So let's, Pat, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you. And, let's and thank all break. of you. Yeah. Thanks for Thank listening. you for holding. You've been listening to part one of a two-part series with Patricia Berry and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.